Well, good morning, Cross Point. It's good to be here. I'm excited. Um, I've been excited ever since I was asked to, uh, to share with you this morning because uh, as I look out in the congregation, I see several faces I am familiar with. And that gives me joy that I can open the word and try to encourage God's people uh, that are my friends, my coworkers. Um, and, and try to edify uh, God's people this morning. And so I'm excited. Um, those of you who are not familiar with me, um, my name, like Blair said, is Scott Hofen. I spent nine and a half years pastoring First Baptist Church Helena uh, before moving to Enid. I am in my second year teaching at Oklahoma Bible Academy. My wife, Sherry, is in her fourth year teaching at OBA. Um, I have three sons, only one of which is here this morning. Uh, my oldest son is somewhere in the Oklahoma panhandle right now with several of your seniors on their way to their senior trip. And um, my middle son normally would have been here. And he is, he is not shy about telling me, I love to hear you preach, Dad. And so when he came to us yesterday and asked if he could attend another church, not even our church, but another church to witness the baptism of his classmate, my heart was filled with joy. And so he is not here today, uh, but my youngest son, Silas, is in eighth grade. Um, my, my middle son, Wyatt, is a sophomore, and my youngest, Silas, is an eighth grader soon to be a freshman, and, uh, and so, like I said, I am excited to be here and to share with you. I'm just going to jump right in. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 4. Then we are going to back up in a moment and go through chapter 3 to set the stage for what we, I believe we need to see from chapter 4. So let's read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to, every, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the, God, uh, light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to share just a little bit of, of my observations as God's people in our land kind of interact with 2 Corinthians, okay? 
Um, 2 Corinthians, in my observation, both as a Christian, in my knowledge of the word, and my observation as I observe the people of God, 2 Corinthians is one of the lesser-known New Testament books. One of the lesser-known Pauline epistles. Okay? Um, I, if you were to quiz me on, like, what's chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, or what's this chapter of 1 Corinthians, I could give you a basic context of every chapter in 1 Corinthians. I'm not 100% sure I could do that with 2 Corinthians. If you were to um, say, like if we were to do some kind of survey and look on Google at multiple different church websites and click on their messages tab and scroll through to see the, the different sermon series that they have done, I would guess that there's way more 1 Corinthians sermon series than 2 Corinthians. That being said, in 2 Corinthians, we get some absolute gems. Gems. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are unseen are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a glorious passage. A passage that means more and more and more to me, the grayer my beard gets. Every year that passes, that passage means something more. Or fast forward to chapter 5. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Four verses later, for our sake, he made him, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious passage that speaks of the trading roles. We took his righteousness because he took our sin. What an amazing statement. Or chapters 8 and 9 that talk about um, the context of chapter 8 gets us into chapter 9 where we get the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was... Shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent at sea. Great passage. Or chapter 12 that tells us that Paul went to the third heaven, but because he did, he was given a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. And three times he prayed, God, take this from me. We get an amazing statement. 
where God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. What an amazing book. Now, I'm not even going to begin to unpack all the amazing gloriousness that's in verses 1 through 4 here. The more you look at it, meditate on it, study it, the more you realize we could actually spend weeks in this passage alone. The more you look, the deeper it gets. Especially when you consider how verses 1 through 6 fit in context with the remainder of chapter 4 and also pretty much all of chapter 3. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 together are some of the most amazing passages in the New Testament. But in order to see what we are going to cover this morning from 1 Corinthians 4, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, see, I did it right there. 2 Corinthians 4, I want us to go to back, back to chapter 3. Before we do, I want us to reread verses 4 and 6. And I want you to, to think about those and file them back. Archive them for the next few minutes. Put them on the back burner. Because we will come back. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. File those away. We will come back. Chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 1 and just kind of walk through chapter 3. We're going to go verses 1 through 6 first, and then 7 and 8, and then 9 through 18. As we set up the context for the verses, the two verses that I just reread out of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation, uh, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, Paul, in his ministry, was constantly, constantly dealing with attacks from people claiming that he was not a real apostle. Now, it is true, Paul received his apostleship differently than the rest of the apostles. The rest of the apostles followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry for three years. They witnessed Jesus' teachings. They saw Jesus' miracles. They witnessed the crucifixion. And they were taught by the, the resurrected Jesus prior to the ascension, or prior to he, him ascending. And people would say, Paul did not witness those things. Paul was not here during the earthly ministry, so he is not a real apostle. He was constantly dealing with that. His entire ministry. Paul himself acknowledged that he got his apostleship differently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, Paul says something like, first Jesus appeared, the, resurre the resurrected Jesus appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the rest of the, the disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers most of which are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Go ask them. And then he says in verse 8, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. He himself acknowledged that he got his apostleship differently. But that didn't mean he wasn't an apostle. And that didn't mean that he didn't, it doesn't mean that he did not get his message directly from the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. And what Paul is saying here in verses 1 through 6 is that the people who heard the gospel he preached, the people who believed in faith the gospel that he preached and repented of their sins and turned to Christ it is their changed lives that act as a letter of recommendation to his apostleship. They, are, they serve as proof that his message is real and that he is an apostle. Their changed hearts and their changed lives give validity to the truthfulness of the message that Paul gave. In the same way, or a similar way, our changed lives give validity to the message we preach in the eyes of a lost world. When we preach the gospel to a lost world, it is the changed lives of those preaching it and sharing with it, sharing it with them that offer proof and give legs to the message. Let's go to 7 and 8. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites 
could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Okay, two things we need to see out of these two verses. Here Paul is setting up a contrast between the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant of Christ. He's setting up a contrast. All, or several times in the Old Testament, we get statements, and I'm going to paraphrase it because it's kind of different at each one, but a paraphrase that would say something like this. If you will indeed obey my voice and listen to my commands, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is a God, God's statement of the old covenant to his people, Israel. If I can find it here. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 is one of these instances. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That is a statement of the old covenant where God attaches on or uh, picks a people and, and makes them his, makes them his treasured possession as he is bringing about the Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 promise that somebody is going to come from the line of Eve that's going to fix what they messed up and he picks this people, and, and that individual is going to come from that line. And he calls this old covenant, if I can find my, the correct spot here. He calls this old covenant in uh, verse 7, the ministry of death. Now, why would he call the old covenant that were given in the Old Testament the ministry of death? Well, he does not call it that because there was something wrong with it. It did exactly what it was designed to do. It was never designed to give life or salvation from sin. Rather, the job of the old covenant that was expressed through the Mosaic law was to expose sin so that the people who received it would see their inability to save themselves and they would look forward and wait on the new covenant. That's why it was given. The second thing we need to see from verse 7 is that the people could not gaze on Moses' face. What's this about? This comes from Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. We get songs about this passage. In Exodus 33, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. The top of the mountain is covered in a black cloud as God's presence descended to the summit of the mountain. And as he's up there, and this is when he is getting the Ten Commandments, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't. If you would see my entire full glory, 
because I am holy and you are sinful, you would not survive. Here's what I'll do. I will shield you from the fullness of my glory as I pass by. And when I'm passed by, I will allow you to see my backside. Now, whatever this means, if he was allowed to see the backside of God or the, the vapor trail left as God went, like what was left, almost like a, you know, the contrails when a plane flies or something, like the, what, the, what was left, or maybe it was the train of his robe. I don't know. But all we know is God shielded Moses from God. Sounds like the gospel. God shielded Moses from God. And as he uncovered him and Moses was able to see not the full glory of God, but the partial glory of God, Moses took this tablets on his shoulders, marched down the mountain, and we got to the bottom of the mountain in Exodus 34. The people of Israel looked at him and went, whoa, what is going on, man? You're glowing. So he put a veil over his face to cover the glow. That is what is being referred to here. Let's go to verses 9 through 18. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of so let me stop there. But if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if it was being brought to, for if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, they, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Throughout Scripture... Much of the time from the Old Testament, we get several types of Christ. I'm referring to biblical typology. Biblical typology is where in the Old Testament, most of the time, we get these, these representatives that give us something, some sort of shadow. They play the role of Jesus in a, in a minor way so that when the real thing comes, we can go, oh yeah, that's what was being talked about. That's biblical typology. 
For example, Genesis chapter 22, there's a father and son by the name of Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac had been promised, God promised Abraham, Isaac, for 25 years that this Genesis 3.15 child would come through the line of Isaac, who would come through uh, through Abraham. 25 years, uh, Abraham waited. The promised child of Isaac finally arrived. And what's God say? Go to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham's hand was literally on the way down with the knife when the hand of God stopped him. Now, wait, wait a second. Seems like I've heard this story before. A long-awaited child finally arrives and his father sacrifices him. Or Genesis 37 through 50 with Joseph. Jacob has 12 sons, but one of which stands apart. Stands alone. One of which is different. Joseph. It has an only begotten kind of feel to it. And the other brothers don't like it. And so they they mistreat him. They try to kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. God intended for the salvation of many. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that story too. I've heard that story with Jesus. In Hebrews, we get images of angels, high priests, sacrificial animals. But in each and every one of these comparisons, Jesus is always, always, always presented as better. He is the better one. In the same way, Moses, in this veil over his face scenario, is presented as a type of Christ. Moses, or should I say his face, acts as a mirror reflecting the glory of the Father. Jesus also displays the glory of his Father. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at uh, at part of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, "Have uh, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Let's go back to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 here. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we we have such a hope, we are very bold. uh, Let's do 13 as well. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
when Moses' face was glowing, he put a veil over his face because, in verse 13, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He veiled his face because of the temporary, imperfect nature of his reflection of God. Is what this most likely means. Christ's glory is veiled too. But whereas with Moses, the goal was to keep the veil on, Christ is different. The goal is to take the veil off, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Another difference, not only are they different because Moses desired to keep the veil on and Christ's veil is desired to be removed, but the difference is in who wears the veil. With Jesus, Jesus doesn't wear the veil. We do. We wear the veil. And with that, let's go back to chapter 4. But before we do, if you are a write in your Bible, underline in your Bible kind of a person, underline verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Let's take that verse and tie it in in the context with what Paul is saying in verses 4 and 6 of chapter 4. Let's take them off the back burner now. By this point, you may or you may not be beginning to pick up on on what seems to jump off the page at me here. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verses 4 and 6, we get not quite, but almost identical statements. They are extremely similar, but not identical. Now here's a question I have for you. Why didn't Paul just simply say, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, and leave it at that? Because in our church Bible Belt culture, That's kind of what we expect him to say. We throw around the term the gospel so much that we wouldn't think twice if Paul would have just said to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, period, done. That's not what he says. He qualifies what kind of gospel or what kind of good news this is. What kind of good news is it? It's the good news of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. So why didn't Paul just stop it and keep them from seeing the light of the gospel? Because Christ is not just the means to the good news. Christ is the good news. Because Christ is not just the one who offered himself to secure our eternal salvation. He is the reward of our salvation. He's the reward of it. By the very definition given by Paul in verse 4, the, a lost person is defined as someone who is blind to this truth. And by the very definition given by Paul in verse 6 of a saved person, a saved person is defined as someone who has had the veil removed and they see Jesus in this light. That is the definition of lost versus saved, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Brothers and sisters, pay very close attention to me. I do not believe that this is the gospel that is often proclaimed in our land. Many proclaim a gospel that says, come to Christ for the blessings he gives. They claim God would never let one of his children experience hardship, pain, or suffering. Come to Christ, they teach, and you will, be, you will receive the blessing of a child of the king. But according to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Anytime we come to Christ for anything other than Christ, we have not come to Christ, period. Brothers and sisters, it is in this observation that we can see a truth of the gospel that many, many professing Christians in our land simply do not seem to get. Many professing Christians verbally acknowledge Christ as their Savior. Who wouldn't, if you're told it's just you're going to spend an eternity in hell and here's a ticket out? But that doesn't mean that they believe in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That doesn't mean the veil has been removed. Many obediently follow Christ with their actions, but their hearts are more in line with what Jesus says when he quotes the Old Testament in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Christ is often treated like someone who sucks the joy out of living. Like we have fun in life, and then we get saved. Trust me. 
I was a pastor in the Bible Belt long enough. Long enough to see that many people who think they are saved simply don't get it. But Christ came not just so that we could go to heaven or just or, or not just to give us a ticket out of hell. He came so that we would be reconciled to God. The all-satisfying, joy-giving, life-breathing one that Adam and Eve and us gave up for lesser satisfactions. That's why he came. Like C.S. Lewis says, in the weight of glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is what we can see in the New Testament when people get saved. This is the way the sinful woman from Luke 7 viewed her salvation when she walks into the Pharisee's house despising the shame and proceeds to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. She understood the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is the gospel Mary believed when she anointed Jesus' feet with expensive ointment regardless of what the lost people, a.k.a. Judas, said about what they should do with that ointment. Why? Because she had a different treasure. This is how Zacchaeus viewed his salvation. When he said, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back. I think it, he says tenfold. Do we have any accountants in the room? This isn't a great financial decision. Let's just, let's just kind of do a little bit of quick, fun math. Zacchaeus was a rich man, so let's say his bank account was a million dollars. Half his goods he gives to the poor. His, his bank account just went from one million to 500,000 in one statement. Then, with the 500000 that's left, if he has defrauded anyone of anything, he will pay them back tenfold. How much of his 500000 was obtained through defrauding people? All of it! He just committed to go into debt for Jesus because he had a new treasure. This is how Zacchaeus understood his salvation. And it's in this, this knowing Christ in this way, this is how the Apostle Paul understood his salvation too. As I close, I want to share with you Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. For the Apostle Paul, all that mattered was being possessed by Jesus. All that mattered to him was Jesus, who was the single most valuable possession Paul and we have. Nothing else matters, period. So as I close, as you might expect, I'm not going to ask you if Jesus Christ is your Savior. I'm not even going to ask you if Jesus Christ is your Lord. I do, however, want you to be brutally honest with yourself and with God. Has the veil been lifted? Has the veil been lifted so that you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Is Jesus Christ the single most valuable possession you have? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the gospel, your gospel of the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ or the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, is so much better than anything we could come up with. Thank you that you don't just save us, but you reconcile us back to you. That is what salvation means. Thank you that you are the reward. Not just the one who obtained our salvation to give us the reward. What a good, amazing God you are. And I pray for all of us in this room where, who's, who's had the veil re removed. I pray that we would all live in this reality. We would live like this is the gospel that we've cling to so tightly. And I pray for anyone in this room who still wears the veil. It's just like it says here. The goal is for the veil to be removed. You don't want it. You don't want the veil just on them. You don't want them to, to keep the veil. You want to remove it 
So I pray that you would illuminate their hearts to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And it's in his glorious name I pray. Amen.